there's just unlimited potential there's unlimited opportunity you know um i do try to remind myself that there's unlimited possibility of what can be done what i can learn what i can see you know out in the world it's just it really is unlimited and definitely from the professional perspective and this is something we always get excited about when we think about the brand that there are unlimited problems in the world <laughs> you know there are so many social issues that we need to talk about and we need to bring awareness to and we need to try to tackle from a different perspective so this idea that really what we hope you know and this is our our vision and our dream that Scarabeus Satcher can try to advocate for as many causes as we can and the, the possibilities really are unlimited unlimited amount of people that we could you know reach out to that we can connect with that we can you know try to influence or change in even small ways Hi, and welcome to Unlimited, the podcast platform that gives voice to inspiring women from the Arab world and beyond to engage, empower, and drive growth. I'm your host, Daniela Rossi, and for this new episode of Unlimited Women's Brands, I'm pleased to introduce you, May Kassem, born and raised in Egypt and with a master in psychological counseling from Geneva in Switzerland. May has supported young and adults in dealing with severe mental illnesses, such as schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, personality disorders, OCD, depression, and anxiety. To spread awareness on these topics that too often we are scared to face and discuss, in 2018, she co-founded Scarabeus Sarcher, a homegrown Egyptian advocacy streetwear label that is far more than just a sustainable, ethical, and premium quality brand. It advocates for social and environmental change. It's fashion for a cause, fashion for healing. Hi, May, and welcome to Unlimited. How do you do? Hi, Daniela. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure, May. Well, you all know by now how much I'm fond of storytelling as a medium to spread awareness on important topics. And your latest lookbook for the collaboration with the UN Refugee Agency reads, We All Have a Story to Tell, What's Yours? So let's start with you, the founder. What's your story, May? The main reason that was the tagline on this latest collaboration, which we'll talk about later, is just really the idea that we will never get to know each other unless we tell each other our stories. Um, and that's really where it came from. So basically my story, I mean, I was born and raised in Egypt. Um, lived abroad a few times. I lived in the US. I lived in Rome. I lived in uh, Geneva, Switzerland. And that gave me a really nice perspective. I was exposed to a lot of different cultures, a lot of different ways of doing things. Fast forward many years since I was born. <laughs> and then um, I guess, you know, talking about my journey with mental health and, you know, remembering that point in time where I realized that this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I remember it was in uh, 11th grade, I was a junior in high school. And that's when I, I took a psychology class, it was just an elective. And that's when I realized, wow, I love this. You know, the idea that you can understand other people that you can understand yourself, that you can find a reason for why people do what they do, and why they feel what they feel. That for me was fascinating. And I remember it clearly taking that class. And it wasn't like the teacher was great. It was just the content that was really fascinating for me. I'm not going to lie. I wasn't the best student. So having that was basically the only class where I felt like, wow, I really want to do well. You know, I actually want to learn. I really want to know more about it. So 
that was definitely a turning point for me. And then I went into university. I majored in psychology, uh, graduated. And then there was a decision that had to be made at that point. And, you know, we have a family business that is in the textile industry. And so it was, okay, are you going to go and work in the family business or are you going to pursue psychology? And, you know, so many people struggle with that when you have a family business. Um, so I did. I went in. I worked with my father for a few years, um, which, you know, even though at the time I wasn't super excited about it. But I have to say, if it wasn't for those few years, I might not be where I am today. You know, I might not have even started a brand. So that was really useful. Um, so I did that for a few years until I was finally like, OK, I have to go back to what I'm really passionate about. I really want to pursue this. And that's when I did it. I did my master's in psychological counseling in Geneva. And then two years, you know, towards the end of my master's, the revolution in Egypt happened. And at that point, another decision had to be made where I was thinking, okay, so what am I going to do now? Am I going to stay in Geneva, uh, try to find a job and, you know, continue here? Or, you know, obviously I could not do that. And I had to, there was this pull that, you know, I can't just not go back to my country when there's something so major happening, there's a revolution. And there was, you know, this idea that like, I have to be part of it. You know, this is history. How could I not be part of it? Um, so I decided to come back and I, I settled back in Egypt and I worked in um, hospitals and clinics and school settings. I worked in a variety of settings. Like, like you mentioned, I worked at that time um, with severe mental illness. I really saw everything and it was, you know, it was very eye opening and it was a very, very rich experience having been exposed to all these different settings and all these different disorders. Um, but you know, the, at that point, even though I learned so much, I always felt like something is missing in the equation. There's, there's something there that, okay, people are coming in, whether it's to a hospital or to an outpatient clinic or to a support group and they're getting treatment, but there's still something missing. And so, you know, I did that for a while. And then I met my husband in 2014 we got married <laughs> and there was a pause in my professional career as you know, very often there is. <laughs> so we got married uh, a year later, I had my daughter. So another pause in my professional career, stayed a, a few years um, just taking care of her. Uh, we moved to Rome at the time. My husband was working with the United Nations. So we moved there. And then we made another big decision in our lives at that point where it was, you know, my husband had spent many years with many different agencies in the UN. And he had the same sort of dissatisfaction that I had when I was working, you know, as, as a psychologist in all these different settings. And it was this idea that something, again, is missing. Something is not being dealt with. And so we decided, OK, we're going to leave all of this. We're going to leave all the safety, all the security, all the <laughs> financial security and go back to Egypt and start our own thing. And that's when we decided to start Scarabaeus Satcher. Perfect. So Scarabaeus Satcher. What does it stand for? We know Scarabaeus as one of the symbols of antique Egypt, but uh, where's the connection with the fashion brand? Okay, so first let me talk about the pronunciation because nobody knows how to pronounce it. And that's always something that people, like they either avoid saying it or they're just like, well, how do you say it? So basically it's Scarabaeus Satcher. It is the Latin translation for the sacred scarab. So the, the scarab, you know, was obviously sacred back in ancient Egypt. And that was something that we felt very strongly about. First of all, we wanted a name that spoke to our heritage. And at the same time, um, the scarab represented something really interesting for the ancient Egyptians, um, which was this idea of resurrection, of revival, of rebirth. 
Um, this idea that there's a creature that wakes up at, you know, every morning at dawn, does its thing, you know, sleeps at sunset, and it's just every day goes and, you know, keeps on doing what it's doing. And it's been around for thousands of years. It has a very hard shell, you know. So it was this idea of, number one, resiliency, you know, and, and lasting and being out there and doing what you need to do. And at the same time, the idea of resurrection and revival. And that's what we wanted to do with the fashion industry. We wanted to have this rebirth of what it means to be fashionable and also what it means to have individual transformation and individual change through the mental health advocacy part. So that's basically why we chose the name. It is a bit complicated, you know, but it, it makes people remember, okay, so what was that brand again? What was their name? But yeah, that's where it comes from. I promise we're going to learn how to pronounce it. Scarabeus Sacha, a strong name for a strong meaning and strong purpose, which is why we love it. Talking about the whys, why did you choose fashion to make an impact? If I were to rewind just a little bit, I mean, the idea Scarabeus Satcher was actually born, you know, in 2005. And at that time, it was my husband who actually thought of this idea that there were no, at the time in 2005 in Egypt, there were no local brands um, that were able to compete on the international market. And everybody knows that Egypt has amazing cotton, we have amazing resources, we have amazing production capabilities, and there wasn't much out there. So he was really frustrated. And even at the time, he also had, you know, certain positive messages that he would put on the on the T-shirts. So he started it and then he had to stop it. You know, at the time he was in university, he was actually in medical school to study to be a doctor. Um, and then he graduated. He went into the army, you know, one thing after the other. So that was put on pause. Scarabeus Satcher was reborn in uh, at the end of 2018. The main reason that we decided, you know, we did many things, as, as I had mentioned, and we even started a foundation at some point also to make social change and, and then things for legal purposes also in the country that got put on hold. So we decided, okay, we're going to go back to the idea of fashion. Why fashion? Very simply, because, you know, we all wear clothes and clothes are a statement. Fashion is a statement. That's what it's all about, you know, and you you portray what you want to portray to other people through what you wear through the choices you make about what every day you wake up and what am I going to put on today and what do I want to show the world and so it's a really strong um, tool to deliver messages to other people to have people understand who you are what you believe in what you stand for and so that's the main reason why we felt okay we're going to combine you know social advocacy specifically with mental health and fashion because this can reach a lot of people and this can really a lot of people can relate it through the choices they make about what to wear. Fashion as a statement from an individual perspective, but also from the industry itself, right? And we know that fashion is uh, trying to make a mark towards uh, sustainability. I know sustainability is one of your key USPs. And I'd like you to explain us what goes behind uh, this uh, tagline for it not to be just a tagline, right? So is it sustainable to be sustainable? Yes, yes. Um, that's a really good question, especially that is it sustainable to be sustainable? You know, I, I really, that's a very good way of thinking about it. Um, so yeah, you know, as you mentioned, we decided again from the very beginning that we do want to be sustainable. We want to be eco-friendly. Um, that is the only way now to move forward. Everybody is moving in that direction. 
whether, like you just mentioned, it's a PR stunt and they're just saying that we're sustainable or they have a certain line in a you know huge department store, but that just says we're using 25% recycled polyester, whatever is out there. Um, but sustainability is the only way to move forward. So when we decided, okay, what, what can we do to start off by being sustainable? We figured, okay, so we're gonna use organic Egyptian cotton. It's Egyptian cotton, which is the best cotton in the world, but it's also organic. So we started off that way um, and we had all the certifications, you know, our, our cotton is GOT certified, which is the certifying, the international certifying body for organic cotton. We, all our packaging is recycled, recyclable. Um, the manufacturing facility we work with is certified in fair trade and Demeter, you know, it has a lot of certifications and we really wanted to do it right. And not just because it's what's, the trend that's moving in fashion, but it's also because fashion is the second biggest polluter on earth after the oil industry. So the amount of waste that comes from, you know, fast fashion, from people discarding clothes, from people buying materials that are harmful to the water they get washed in, harmful to the air, harmful to the land, that's, you know, all of that is, it's, it's a huge, huge issue. So, we decided, okay, it's going to be sustainable. Um, we recently also launched an, uh, a collection that's upcycled, made from pre-consumer waste, um, which is basically dead stock fabric, scraps, uh, leftover fabric, things that were left over from other productions. So instead of them going to waste and being thrown at landfills, we take these fabrics and we create a collection out of them so we can close the loop and become more circular. So you know, being a sustainable fashion brand has so many steps and there's so much that you can do. You know, it's becoming a, a, a huge industry. And we always talk to people and say, okay, just choose one thing to start off with. And as you go along in your brand, add more and more sustainable elements. So having said that, being a sustainable fashion brand is very hard. You know, I think anywhere you are in the world, not just in Egypt or the MENA region, but you know, it's still not in the forefront. I would say, you know, this is just completely my opinion. I, I still think 75% of consumers are still not going for the sustainable options. I think every brand in the world will tell you how much they have to fight to be able to convince consumers to maybe pay a little bit more or why it's important for you to invest in a piece that's going to last you a lot longer than, you know, a t-shirt that you might buy for like $10 versus a t-shirt that you might buy for 40 or 50, you know, why is there such a big price difference? So it's definitely a struggle. And I think, you know, that's why I like the phrase you used, is it sustainable to be sustainable? Because you really have to find a way to, to be in that in-between where you're not seen as, you know, these boring, unfashionable, untrendy, expensive kind of items, but at the same time still remain eco-friendly and sustainable and circular and offer consumers something different. Thank you, May, for addressing these and while sustainability is this gigantic effort towards the preservation of the environment, I'm afraid that fair trade has gone a bit forgotten lately in the equation. Can you help us to understand what fair trade means from each perspective, from the perspective of the farmers, the manufacturers, the retailer and the final client? So when we come to talk about fair trade, I mean, fair trade is, trade is basically about ethical manufacturing. You don't have to be sustainable to have a fair trade certification. You know, they mean different things. Like I mentioned, our, our production facility is certified as fair trade, which basically means that the farmers and the workers in the factory are all um, 
they're they're given uh, fair wages, you know, minimum wage or above. They're working in conditions that are safe and humane, and there's no, you know, they have lunch breaks, they have bathroom breaks, they have proper working hours. If there's overtime, they get paid overtime. All of those aspects that are basically about human rights and labor conditions and working environment, they could be insured. They have access to uh, educational opportunities, to healthcare, things like that. All of that is part of having a certification of fair trade. The fashion industry tends to be very inhumane and unethical when it comes to the production practices. And everybody has heard about those countries that, you know, they employ minors, they're in, you know, what they call the sweatshops, where they're in conditions that are extremely hot, Um, they're not allowed to take bathroom breaks, they're, you know, it's basically slavery. There's a lot of harm that comes from behind production facilities that are not, whether they're certified in fair trade or that they're actually providing humane conditions for the farmers and the workers and et cetera. Ethical practices, they do go hand in hand and they complement each other, but they're not exactly the same thing. We address the sustainability, we address the fair trade, but uh, we know competition out there, it's uh, wild. So what else is needed to stand out? What have you been doing in these uh, five years uh, since uh, your relaunch? to differentiate yourself from the rest of the market? So it's becoming harder and harder to grab the consumer's attention, you know, and you know that someone's going to see something, for example, on social media. I think, what was the number? Like you have seven seconds to grab their attention. (laughs) And if you don't, it's done, you know. So it's definitely challenging. What we do at Scatterbase Satcher is honestly, it really just starts with passion. And I know that might sound a bit cliche, but it it really is true. You know, you have to be passionate and you have to be genuine and you have to love what you're doing. Because if you're not, it's going to come through and people are going to feel it. And you're just going to end up copying everything else that's out there. And you're not going to be unique and you're not going to actually, you know, not everybody wants to make an impact in the fashion industry, but you're not going to end up being successful. You're not going to last. So the idea is you have to love what you're doing. You have to know why you're doing it. It has to have purpose for you somehow. And not just that. I mean, after that part also comes this idea of just simple quality. You know, what am I offering my consumers? Am I taking the time to make sure that everything I produce is top quality? Am I paying attention to the details? Am I listening to the people out there and seeing what they want? All of this is besides being sustainable and all of those practices. It's just this idea of having a fashion brand. And that's, you know, thankfully, that's something we hear a lot of the time, that people touch our our products and they see what we do and they're like, wow, this is really high quality. And that's why we tell people, you know, you're investing in a piece. It's not something you're going to wear for a season maximum two and have to throw it out. That's exactly against the idea of being eco-friendly. But it's something that's going to last you months and months and months and maybe even years. So you have to invest in it. You have to have good materials and fabrics. You have to make sure the finishing is on point. You have to make sure that the style and the fit and all of that is comfortable. So paying attention to all of these things is definitely something that we we focus on to differentiate ourselves. In addition to the social advocacy part and, you know, uh, raising awareness for mental health, where not to be honest, not a lot of brands are doing this. Not a lot of brands are using fashion as a tool for social impact. What about um, collaborations, May? 
I see you merging forces with uh, small entities as well as large organizations. And I'm thinking about uh, your latest collection, Threads of Life, in collaboration with uh, the UN Refugee Agency. Tell us about it. Yes, this is another part of our, of our brand where we collaborate and we give back. And when we do choose entities to collaborate with, like you mentioned, whether they're small, medium or large, it's about this idea of choosing communities or groups of individuals that are, of course, marginalized, but not just marginalized, but that most people don't actually pay attention to. There's a lot of charities and organizations out there that get, to be honest, a lot of funding and they get a lot of PR and they get a lot of attention. And there are thousands, if not millions out there that don't. And everybody is in need. So we're very um, particular when it comes to choosing who we actually collaborate with. Previously, we've collaborated with an entity called Dialogue in the Dark, an organization that raises awareness for um, the visually impaired and blind. And it's, you know, it's it's an experience that pe pe a lot of people have heard about dining in the dark. And this was something that's called Dialogue in the Dark. And it's an experience that you go through and it's extremely moving, extremely touching. You're guided. You know, they always say um, in this experience, uh, the blind are the ones that can see and you are the one who is blind, you know, because you're guided through this experience to get to know what it actually feels like. Uh, to be visually impaired or blind. So we collaborated with them. We created special edition designs that actually um, advocate for their cause. We gave back. We included Braille cards in our packaging for each product because after talking with them, we realized this is something that they struggle with. They can't shop independently because they don't know what they're looking at. They're not looking at something that they can understand what it is. So we included Braille cards with a description of the brand and the product, etc. So this was something we were very proud of. The, the latest collaboration with our collection that's upcycled, as you mentioned, it's with the UNHCR in Egypt. And here we also, um, we collaborated with refugee artists. They, we bought their artwork and then we used the artwork to create an upcycled collection. And as part of everything we do, we campaign a lot. We do a, load, a lot of social campaigning. We create a lot of media around it, whether they be short films or you know, um, just videos that we post on social media. So we did storytelling interviews with them to understand. And that's where the tagline of, you know, what's your story? So we sat with them. We did interviews. We understood their story, what's going on for them, what happened, how have they become a refugee? What are their ambitions in life? You know, and honestly, honestly, Daniela, it's just really amazing when you sit with people who have gone through hardship, you expect to hear, you know, sob stories and you expect to hear things that are very dramatic or depressing. And yes, part of their stories are, but the resilience that you see on people who have gone through really tough times, how it's made them stronger, how they've learned, how they've grown, you know, and a lot of people really do make the most of their situation because they have to, they don't have another choice. So it was really inspiring to, to hear their stories and to see what they've gone through and where they are now, to understand how the whole system works and, and where it's broken, how many places it's broken in, and to see, okay, so through this campaign, what can we do? You know, many people have talked about the issue of refugees. Many people have called people to support the cause, to donate money, you know, their campaigns every day. But what can we do that's different? How can we have people understand, you know what, okay, yes, maybe a war broke out in that person's country and that's why they had to leave the country to start over. But any of us could be a refugee at any point in time, especially with what's happening in the world. 
get people to, you know, have empathy, to feel compassion towards others where they might think like, yeah, this issue is so far away from me. I, I can't relate to that. I would never be a refugee or I would never be blind or visually impaired. It's not about that. It's about understanding what it feels like to be in the shoes of another human being that's going through something tough and understanding their mental health and how you can support that through still being fashionable, still being trendy and being, you know, eco-friendly at the same time. So that's our latest collaboration. Um, we took their artwork. We also did another thing that we did with them. We did a workshop um, that where we worked on their mental health and we did some guided meditation. We did visualization exercises and we created new pieces of artwork at the end of that workshop that was representative of their identity, of their journey, of where they want to go in life. Um, and we're actually selling those paintings. So uh, we put them on display with our new collection and we're selling those paintings because, you know, you can't show enough what people go through or who they are. And so we try to do so many different ways of doing it, whether it's social campaigning, videos, the collection itself and its designs, their artwork. So we try to make it very holistic. And at the end of the day, you know, a percentage of the sales goes back to these refugee artists. It doesn't go back to the organization. It goes back to each refugee, each individual artist. That's what can happen when there are a psychologist and a doctor running a fashion brand. It's evident to me that uh, your studies and your real life experiences as a psychologist had a huge impact in the way you look at life and business. And probably even those couple of years when you stopped to focus on building your family and raising your newborn daughter, maybe they did have an influence on the direction you then gave to your brand and project. Now that I think about it, um, I actually never thought about it this way, but now that I think about it, I think those two and a half or so years that I, I stopped working and I stayed with my daughter and seeing her, you know, I had studied so much about developmental psychology and I worked a lot with kids in different settings, but actually seeing it firsthand with your own child, it really does something to you. You know, you, you see the influence of the home environment. You see the influence of parenting and how important it is from the minute they're born. You know, it doesn't start at two years old. Like a lot of people will tell you, it starts at zero. You know, It starts with even an in infancy, how much you hold your child, how much eye contact, do they hear your voice? Do they feel loved? Are their basic needs met? You know, all of that. And a lot of people don't even realize this. All of this can shape who you are in your 20s and 30s and what happens in your teenage years. So I think having that time and relating it to everything that I had experienced in, in you know, my years of work in, in the hospitals and the clinics, it was this realization that, you know, you have to focus on prevention. It's yes, treatment is extremely important. And after the fact is at least you can try to, you know, help some people, but you have to focus on prevention. You have to focus on, on how to give parents the right tools to be able to, um, you know, guide their own kids to, to create uh, human beings that are, you know, I don't mentally sound, let's say, um, that can contribute back to society, that know how to emotionally regulate to, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we could talk about so many things, but I've definitely realized that, you know, parenting is key. And that's why... I got certified as a positive discipline educator. I work with parents. I work with educators, you know, in the school and home environments to be able to start at that core, at that starting point, so that 
we don't have so many, you know, mentally unwell individuals, you know, that you can try to, to catch it early. So I definitely think that shaped a lot. And that's why I wanted to relate that through the brand, because, you know, especially working at the hospital where you're working, um, you know, multidisciplinary and you're doing so many different things. It's not just this one on one psychotherapy. Working with families, you realize how how much information is missing and how much education about mental illness is, is it's lacking. It's lacking as a society and it's lacking as people even seeking the information. So that's why we were like, okay, we're going to focus on social advocacy. We're going to focus on the societal level so that we can just at least try to raise awareness for basic knowledge and information about mental health. Actually, um, a, a few months back, we worked with a, you know, a really great film director and we produced two short films about anxiety and depression. And they were, you know, very much leaning towards, you know, a very artistic uh, take, but it was this idea that we want people to see it and just try to have an understanding of what it might feel like when you're depressed or what it might feel like when you have severe anxiety. Because like we talked about storytelling, you know, that's the only way that people are going to build empathy, build compassion, and then do something about it so that we can have, you know, much less mental illness in the world. Wow. Congratulations, May. I truly see unlimited dedication and unlimited passion in everything that you do and how you do it, which brings me to ask you what we call our paramount question. What does unlimited mean to you? So I would say, you know, the word can mean so many different things, um, but I definitely look at it as in there's just unlimited potential. There's unlimited opportunity. You know, um, I do try to remind myself that there's unlimited possibility of what can be done, what I can learn, what I can see, you know, out in the world. It's just, it really is unlimited. And definitely from the professional perspective, and this is something we always get excited about when we think about the brand, that there are unlimited problems in the world. <laughs> you know, there are so many social issues that we need to talk about and we need to bring awareness to and we need to try to tackle from a different perspective. So this idea that really what we hope, you know, and this is our, our vision and our dream, that Scarabeus Satcher can try to advocate for as many causes as we can. And the, the possibilities really are unlimited, unlimited amount of people that we could, you know, reach out to, that we can connect with, that we can, you know, try to influence or change in even small ways. I need to thank you, May, for sharing with us your personal journey and professional story. And um, congratulations for your precious, precious mission. Thank you so much, Daniela. Really, I'm, you know, I loved our conversation. Thank you for having me on and, you know, the best of luck and we will always support each other. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed discovering the person, the story and the vision behind the brand. Now it's your turn. We'd love to hear from you. Please share your comments or questions on our social media pages on Instagram at unlimited.me and LinkedIn at Unlimited Platform. And don't forget to leave a review. Best in last, if you'd love to share your story, please connect with us on our website, www.unlimited.me. We're always on the hunt for inspiring stories of unlimited women. And you could be the next one.